thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. How's it going, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is Mike VDB. How's it going, Mike? It is going good. What's up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. We've got some exciting updates about Locations Unknown. Uh, if you haven't noticed on the Facebook page, we do have a store now with this really cool hat. It'd be a great <laughs> accessory for any hike. Uh, won't keep you warm in the winter, but you'll look really cool. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, cool hat. Yeah, it's a cool hat. We're going to have some other stuff coming online later this year, so keep an eye out for that. We've also had some people ask about donating to the show, so we do have a Patreon page now. If you go to patreon.com slash locationsunknown, you'll find our Patreon page. So check it out, and if you want to help the show, uh, throw us a couple bucks. We do have a sponsor this week. So this week sponsoring our show is Verger CBD Products. As someone who doesn't drink, I know, Mike, you know me, I'm not a big drinker. Nope. I don't take a lot of medications because I don't like prescriptions. CBD is kind of my go-to for relaxation. So thanks to the our friends at Verger, I can get a candy bar, vaporize raw hemp flour uh, to get the relaxation effects of cannabis without being high because I usually don't want to be out of my head. I just want to chill out and relax. And they just released their new Relax and Revive Terpene tincture. So they have one where you take it and it'll kind of wake you up for the day. And there's another one that when you take it, it'll calm you down. So you can take one in the morning, one for the evening. It's all natural, very healthy. Verger uses only the highest quality CBD products. You can find them on their website or on Facebook. The company name is Verger. That's V-E-R-D-U-R-E med.com. So that's V-E-R-D-U-R-E-M-E-D.com. All right, everybody, grab your gear and get a friend as we dive into locations unknown. The year is 1975. Charles McCuller, a young man from Virginia, is traveling across country to visit a friend in Eugene, Oregon. Charles is a hobbyist photographer. He's spending his free time hiking and focusing on his craft. During his stay in Oregon, he planned a two-day hiking trip to Crater Lake National Park. Charles wanted to focus on winter photography, and reports claim that Charles was ill-prepared for the conditions he met on his arrival in the park. This did not deter Charles, as he planned a two-day photography session. Once finished, Charles planned to return to his friend's house to visit some more before he was on his way home. When Charles never returned, the search began. This week, we'll talk about what Charles experienced and the bizarre timeline that led to the discovery of his remains and left us with more questions than answers. Crater Lake is located in the southeast section of Oregon, and the park was established on May 22, 1902. So, Mike, this makes it the fifth oldest national park in the United States. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because uh, I mean, how many parks are there's not a lot of there's not a lot of parks. So, I mean, I feel like if there's twenty big ones, there it's going to be in the top ten. Usually, there's a fifty yeah. percent chance. So, I guess it's not as impressive. Um, they do see about a half a million visitors per year. Uh, the size is 286 square miles, so it's almost as big as New York City. So it's not huge, 
uh, but it's still a relatively big park. There are some fun historical facts about the area. The basin that eventually became Crater Lake formed when a 12,000-foot tall volcano called Mount Mazama erupted and collapsed 7,700 years ago. So that caldera filled with water and created the lake that we see today. So, Mike, did you know, and this is pretty cool, <laughs> Crater, Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the United States. I did not know that. It's 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 pretty dang deep, so you can imagine what that volcano going off was like to, to collapse in that deep. It's 1,943 feet deep. So it is the deepest lake in America. And for some perspective, again, we'll, we'll look at New York City. If you placed uh, one World Trade Center at Crater Lake's deepest part, there would still be 151 feet of water above the highest point. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculously deep. I grew up around Lake Geneva, and that lake's about 180 feet deep, and we always thought that was incredibly deep. And but that, that, is, yeah, that is deep, but it's, yeah. Yeah, 1900 is ridiculous. <laughs> so that, that does place it as the second deepest in North America and ninth in the world. So that's a top 10 that's a little bit nicer than uh, in the top 10 of the oldest national parks. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There's also, this, this one was kind of funny. I didn't even know if I was going to put it in here, but there's been a tree floating in the lake for 100 years. <laughs> but but the way it makes it really unique they it has a name they call it the old man of the lake it's a 30 foot tall tree stump they think it's a hemlock because it's so old it's kind of like it's fossilized and it's been bobbing perfectly vertically in the lake since 1896 that is hilarious that no one's plucked it out of there yet i know you think someone would go ruin it because they make yeah. somebody so you just think there'd be some some jerk that would go out and like try and tilt it or something or maybe it's but it's yeah it's perfectly balanced where it's just bobbing up and down just floating around in the there's lake probably for, probably a state law now that says you can't you can't take it i wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of rule there like giant fine in jail time if you touch it yeah so <laughs> so i thought that was pretty neat that's a really neat thing and that's cool it's it's i read enough about it because there's a lot of information that i kind of want to go there to see the log <laughs> Like, you're going to go in a canoe and see if you can spot the tree. So we'll move on from the old man of the lake. I thought this was really cool, too. There's actually no water that flows in or out of Crater Lake. So how does it fill up? Just rainwater? Yeah, snow it's, melt? It's, it's really, yeah, snow melt, rainwater. Yeah. The only water that gets that leaves is either evaporation or the subsurface uh, leakage or seepage that, that gets out. Other than that, it's quite literally, and I when we talk about the climate in a little bit, you'll, I think you'll see why. Yeah. The park's covered in snow from October through June. So it's, it's covered in snow through a big portion of the year and has been known to stick around through July. It averages about 66 inches of rainfall, and the snowfall average is 44 feet. Wow. So that's, that's what's keeping the lake uh, uh, filled. During the winter, they say it can reach about 18 degrees Fahrenheit with summer temperatures soaring to 90 that's such a short period of time, though. So I think it's it's mostly just cold most of the year, and you probably have a few, a month or two where you're getting those summer temperatures. Yeah. Now, what they did say, and I had to look this up a little bit, because they say the lake came close to a total freeze in 1985. And the last time Crater Lake National Park was completely frozen was 1949. And at first I was like, okay, I'm, I'm reading some bull on Wikipedia they don't mean the whole lake was frozen at the bottom. They mean it was frozen all the way across the surface. Wow. So it, it, the water just must be so warm. 
Because it's so deep? Yeah, because it's so deep, it, it's capturing the heat even that short period of time, and it's enough to keep it from completely freezing. As it said, in 1949, it was cold enough, long enough, that it did completely freeze for almost three months, and it almost happened again in 1985. So that's a little bit about the climate. I'll jump into some of the animals present that are more predatorial. We have black bears, Canadian lynx, and bobcats. Nothing too crazy like uh, uh, wolves or, or grizzlies. The highest point, we're not, we're not even getting above tree line. So the highest point in Crater Lake is Mount Scott at 8,929 feet. They say getting there is a fairly steep 2.5-mile hike yeah. uh, from the trailhead. So it's, it's kind of a more uphill hike, but we're not talking deep backcountry, long distances. It's stuff you could probably do in a day if you're, you're used to do, doing this stuff. Yeah. So really what, what, what I think you're getting into for risks are obviously winter months. You know, there's a ton of snow. Yep. There's always a potential for heat exposure on the hot summer days, but it's not a desert climate in regards to heat. And there, there's a ton of trees and shrubs and water. So I'm thinking the most significant risks have to be in the winter months. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think your biggest risk, you're going to have people that come out there that aren't prepared for the elements and probably frostbite is a major concern. Kind of like our friend Charles showing up in the middle of winter. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure the photography is fantastic though. I mean, if you can imagine yeah. that you get those snow drifts and 44 feet of snow annually, I mean, I'm sure it is great, but if, if you're not prepared, that can be, you know, one hellish environment. So, uh, let's start talking about Charles. Mike, what do you got on Charles? As Joe said, uh, Charles McCuller was a male aged 19 at the time of his disappearance. He, his remains were found. Outside of that, we don't know a lot about his height, his weight, his hair color, or even the clothes he was last seen in. We kind of have some speculation on what he was wearing based on some of the things that were found at the, the site of his remains. Yeah, and we have that one photograph, but it's black and white, so you can't tell if he's got like dark brown hair, black hair. Yeah, you know, he just looks like your typical 19-year-old from that time period. From letters from his father, his personality, he seemed to be very reliable and punctual. He would check in with his parents routinely, let him know where he's staying, what his itinerary is for the next couple of days. So this wasn't him traveling across country to be rebellious or to, no. like, to, to go, like, so he was calling his parents regularly, so they... Everything seemed like it was on the up and up with the, this his family life and, and his friends and everything. Yeah, essentially he wanted to travel across the country to photograph the different national parks, something that it sounds really cool to me to do. Yeah, I, I would love to do that. And so his you know principal occupation hobby at the time was really photography. And he left off in a, a Volkswagen and you know some clothes and camera equipment, and he was going to visit every national park. From what we gathered, his experience in the wilderness, especially in Crater Lake, was not very great. Especially for winter survival, you need to really be prepared to to survive in this type of climate. Yeah, so it might have been more of like a city boy who kind of got maybe a little bit of the outdoors bug and just jumped in feet first without really knowing the risks associated with it. Exactly, and even the, the just the fact that he's 19. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of experience... Uh, really, I mean, in life at 19, so you, you're not going to expect him to really be capable in this type of environment. It definitely in Crater Lake, from what we gathered, he had he had never hiked this place before he went there, so he had no idea of the terrain. He didn't 
he probably didn't know of the climate to expect. He didn't know the trails or anything. So, uh, you know, that was another thing working against him when he went to Crater Lake at sure. this time. Sure. Kind of that uh, young, dumb, invincible thing that we all go through. Yeah. I mean, you remember when you were 19. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, I could do I could do anything. Due to, you know, the lack of information on Charles, I'm going to just jump right into the timeline. So uh, starting in January 8th, 1975, Charles left his home uh, planning to travel the national park system to photograph the parks. And by January 16th through the 22nd, it's not too clear on which, you know, which day, but that time frame, Charles had called his parents from Yuma, Arizona. So in a pretty short period of time, the 8th to the 22nd, he's already in Arizona. So by the 29th of 1975, this would be the last call that Charles would make to his parents, and he was in Eugene, Oregon. He said he was staying at some friend's, a friend's house. Yeah, so he was he, he really traveled in that yeah. month. I mean, he went all the way from you know, the he was upper, moving around. Yeah, the northeast <laughs> all the way down southwest, then back up to the, uh, the northwest. So yeah. That's that's cool. So uh, on January 29th, while Charles was staying with his friends, he had told his friends that he was planning to travel to Crater Lake to photograph the park in winter. His plan was to return by the 31st, and he explicitly told his friends that if he was if he was not back by February 1st to call the police. I'll give Charles credit here. He actually thought out a plan. All right, if I am going to Crater Lake, if I don't show back, you know, show up at this time call the authorities report report me missing yeah there's a lot of stories of people who won't leave their itinerary and yeah it's such I, a big deal and, and very important when you're going out especially by yourself i can't tell you how many cases we've read where the person will just you know go out into the park without telling anyone doesn't check in with a park ranger office and you know it really hampers the search and rescue team once they determine you are missing so sure it's it's great that charles told his friends you know where he was going when to expect him back. Uh, and Charles' friends had said this was the last time that they saw him. Now, there are reports that on January 30th, a logger mentioned to police that he had given Charles a ride to the park entrance. If you're to believe this logger, we have to assume that Charles did make it to the park. So he ha- And he had a van, so I'm guessing his van could only make it to a certain point. Yeah. And he had to hitch a ride to get to a specific spot. So my, and now I'm I'm going on assumption here. My assumption is he had a particular area he wanted to see. I'm yep. guessing, and that's why he needed to get a ride to that spot. Now, I'm gonna, I won't bring this up now, but I have a something new just popped into my head on this case r- relating to this logger. But I'm not gonna get into it just okay. yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, save so, it for the big reveal. Yeah, we'll save that for the big reveal. So, all right, February 1st rolls around, and Charles doesn't make it back to his friend's house. So per Charles' order, his friends contact contact the local authorities and the National Park Service and report him missing. At that time, the Park Service, in coordination with state police, blanketed the area around the lake and the surrounding cities with flyers, and they also started a massive search and rescue operation. Okay. So. We've talked about this in other episodes. These search and rescue operations usually entail canine units, people on the ground, uh, airplanes. Um, so we did have the National Park Service report that during that search, the snow depths were around 24 to 90 inches, with drifts up to 20 feet. 
That's insane. It's insane because <laughs> I mean that's that's a two story house being yeah. covered in snow. So I mean that's so go stand outside if you have a two story home. Go stand outside in the ground and think of snow covering your house up. Now think of if you don't have the correct e- equipment to get through that drift, how are you going to travel through the park? Yeah, and then for the searchers who don't know his in the park itinerary where he intended yep. to go take pictures and stuff, that could be a nightmare to try and search for him. Yeah, and if you know if you have drifts that big. I didn't see the like a wind report, but I'm guessing the wind gusts were ridiculous as well. Yeah, so to, to create drifts that big. Yeah, so just the, the the conditions in the park at this time were not great. Uh, you know, I I can't imagine anyone wanting to go out into the park at this time. But Charles must have pushed through that to take these pictures, which again I think shows inexperience in the wilderness. I. I know for myself and probably you, Joe, and the other guys we hike with, we would never go out there in conditions like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, if if I could get my car close enough, I might go 50 feet from my car for a picture. But I mean, yeah, yeah never leave my car, hitch a ride to somewhere and get dropped yep. off. I mean, then you're just asking for disaster. So uh, February 1st, obviously, the search and rescue mission starts. The authorities are aware that Charles is missing. An odd tidbit in this case is that the the law enforcement officials didn't notify Charles' parents that he was missing until February 10th, which I, I'm not sure if that's just a lack of coordination or what the issue was, but you would think that as soon as somebody goes missing, they're going to notify their, their family next of kin you know, yeah, especially that would know because him. they know his, yeah, they know his friends, and his yep. friends are the ones that call it, so I'm sure they could get the information. That's like I'd say the first thing you ask, you're like, okay, give yeah. me the family information. Let's learn about what's going on and then contact the next of kin. And and you would assume the state police would be, you know, have the capability to figure out who his parents were, you know, find their number, their address, contact them somehow. Yeah, you'd think so. So you'd think so. So that <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think no, I that might, I think that might play into one of our theories at the end, too. Um, something else just popped into my head. So. Okay. This is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so Charles goes missing February 1st, and the search and rescue operation commences. They don't find anything. A lot of time passes by. Actually, it almost up into early October of 1976 passes by before anything of Charles is found. So, interesting, early October 1976, a group of hikers were well off the normal trails in a really desolate part of the park. Um, what is known as Bibby Creek. It's, I, I guess it's on the west side of the park. Okay. In this location, hikers found a backpack and a scarf. Within the backpack, the hikers found an odd-shaped key. So the hikers, they find these couple items. They mark the location with like a piece of clothing in a tree, mm-hmm. and they hike back to the ranger station. They're in the ranger station going through the backpack with one of the rangers, and they mention this odd-shaped key, and there happened to be a part-time park official by the name of, I believe his name was Marion Jack. Um, I'm looking at my yes. notes right now. Yep. Marion yes. Jack. Yep, See, he's a seasonal law enforcement ranger. Yeah. Now, Marion Jack was around in 1975 when they did the initial search and rescue, and he remembered those flyers that were passed around the lake and the different cities. One of the items that they said was with Charles at the time of his disappearance was an odd-shaped key. So Marion heard this and instantly was thinking, oh, this is the the missing hiker from 1975. 
Marion walks over. Oh, so over. the shape of the key was key. I see what you did there. I'm being a little bit serious, too, though. But, like, that, so it was odd enough that it yep. struck the memory of yeah, one of the park officials there to know. So I, I'm guessing that leads to them identifying that, okay, this is this guy's key. Well, so at this point, they... They don't know that it's Charles. It okay. ju- this this park ranger, Marion Jack, is just it's piqued his curiosity because he remembered that being one of the items on Charles. So I'm sorry, but what a cool name for a ranger. I mean, Marian did he Jack. just yeah? Did he just walk around with a like an axe all the time, like <laughs> over his shoulder, like just always, just kind of like yeah, one, I don't know. one thumb in his belt buckle and the other one holding the axe on the shoulder. Just <laughs> I'm okay. I'm, I'm Marion Jack. Um, okay just go i'm sorry go on <laughs> thank you for that little tidbit there yep <clears throat> um so uh marion walks over to the hikers and he starts talking to him and the hikers draw a map of where they think they found the backpack in an area what the marion called a bibby drainage area okay. so marion along with another ranger by the name of dave lange uh rode some horses out to that area and like I said before, the hikers had hung a piece of clothing at the location, which is really smart. I, you know, yeah, it's not it's, something they you might. It for them. Yeah, you might. You know, you might find this weird stuff in a park. I, you know, not everyone's gonna, instinct is going to be to mark that with something so someone else can find it. But um, give a lot of credit to those hikers. They, you know, they figured something happened here. Yeah, especially you know they get the heightened sense of if they feel like they've come across potentially a crime scene or a yep. body. You know, to be calm-headed enough to take account of their surroundings and exactly, you know, get an idea of where they're at, and then leave markers so that you know the the rangers can get there. So uh, the rangers get to this scene, and this is where it starts getting weird. So the rangers arrive to where the hikers had marked finding the backpack, and they immediately begin searching the area. They and within it, it doesn't give a time frame, but it, it said rather quickly. They come across a pair of pants in this small canyon. This is kind of a creepy description of the scene. Just try to, you know, everyone listening, try to picture you're in this remote, desolate part of the park. No one should really be out there, and you come across this site. So Marion describes these pants as if someone was standing straight up, kind of looking up into the sky, and just melted into the ground. So the pants looked undisturbed, but kind of just... Okay, so now I'm thinking, like, this will sound weird, but I'm sure everyone's kind of seen pants in the wild, just laying yeah. there, like, where the heck did those come from? They're just kind of, like, sprawled out or crumpled up, laying on their side. So is this yeah. more like, if you think of, like, a firefighter, how they have their pants on their boots ready to get pulled up? Like, it's just... Yeah, it's like kind of like... you took them down into a pile? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think Marion described it pretty well, you know... Just imagine, yeah, like your body just turned to liquid and you just fall straight into the ground and your pants kind of, you know, fall and coil up. Well, and then it makes me think, too, like it obviously was weird enough that he described it in a weird way. So even yeah. if it's not the best of description, he felt the need to describe it versus if he just said, oh, we found a pair of jeans that are exactly. this size. And Marion, from what I understand, was a very seasoned uh, park ranger in this area. So he's seen a lot of lot of sites and he's seen a lot of situations where people have you know perished in the park so yeah, he's probably been on some search and rescues and other yeah things so like that. it's not a kind of guy who's going to easily scare or easily be um puzzled but he 
in reading the reports from Marion, he was absolutely puzzled by this scene of the pants. He, he mentioned other weird things about the scene. So another weird thing he mentioned was the belt was undone and the pants were unbuckled. Which oh, weird. It's weird. And, you know, Joe, you we've both talked about what happens when people are, you know, hypo, you know, they get hypothermia. You actually start getting hot. And oh, people, yeah. The, when you're like super, super cold and you start really. Losing. Yeah. What's I can't remember the phrase for it. But when people get you know, have severe hypothermia, they actually start taking clothing off. It's, yeah, look it up because we wrote it. We wrote it down in here. It's not intuitive at first, but um, yeah, you, you get sensations. Par- paradoxical of, undressing. So this is. happens a lot on Everest yeah. because you have the mix of that extreme cold <clears throat> plus the the altitude and lack of oxygen causing your brain to get larger. So yep. it puts pressure on your brain. You start making horrible decisions, and people will strip completely naked, thinking they're super hot, and then they just freeze to death. Yeah. So there is a chance that uh, Charles. He was suffering from severe hypothermia and just started undressing. But as we describe more of the scene, I don't know that that necessarily makes sense. Yeah, then he would kick his pants off or something. Like kick I think your about pants like if, off. If you're in a be... frantic move undressing, it's not going to be this nice, smooth melting exactly. of your clothing. As they continue searching the area around the pants, Marion reaches down into the pants and he found in one of the pant legs, I believe it was the right leg of the pants he found a broken tibia or fibula kind of broken in the middle with blood on each end there were no other bones in the pants or in the area so this was the only major bone there were you know no arm bones or the other leg bone was missing no hip bone no ribs or anything like that so that's what the heck that's weird too and marion marion says that he found this really odd along with the, the way the pants were laying on the ground so a couple other notes, he found some elastic from underwear, but the, the underwear themselves had deteriorated away. So some of the remains have been there a while. The, the pants sure. and belt, he said, looked relatively fresh and undisturbed. Mm-hmm. I could see jeans lasting out in the wild. They're pretty tough. Yeah, and especially maybe, you know, then there's probably real canvas or you know tough stuff yep. and not some cheap material like you might see today. So it, it gets it gets more interesting. Under the pants, Marion found socks with small bones inside, but no boots. The boots are missing. If if he was alone, yeah. So he he kicks his shoes off. Yep. And just stands there and dies. Like 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 you can't even imagine he'd be sitting down because of the angle the pants would be. Like yep. it's almost like if he or if he got like his feet got frozen to the ground standing upright. And then yeah. what happened to the rest of him? It doesn't make sense. Why is the leg? Why was his leg broken too? Is another well, one leg broken and there's bones there. So like, yeah, you know, I I I don't know. You'll have to tell me pretty soon. But like, we're assuming these. This is Charles' his pants. This is Charles' bones. Where yeah, are the I, rest of them? Why are some of them there? Well, I I have the answer for you, Joe. Okay, <laughs> good because because. <laughs> I'm well, starting I, to get a I'm starting to get a headache trying to understand this. We have the official answer. I don't know if that, that really is the answer. But okay. We'll get into that. But so, like I said, under the jeans, the park ranger found uh, socks with bone fragments in it, and Marion again was puzzled by the fact there were no boots. And they searched a a pretty big area around where the pants were, and they didn't find boots anywhere. And Marion, you know, boots are probably the heaviest thing that. Charles would have had on him 
and they're not going to blow away in the wind. They're probably not going to wash away. Um, you know, if the jeans hadn't washed away, the boots are definitely not going to wash away. Sure. And so that was another puzzling aspect of the this area where his remains were found. And so there was no other items around the jeans. So Marion and Dave kept searching the area and kind of pretty close to where the jeans were found on a, a, the other side of a fallen tree. Marion found a skull that was upside down and a lower jawbone. And around the skull and jawbone, they were also scattered with very small bone fragments. So, so, so several feet away from where the pants were, they found essentially the head and the jaw. Yep. So we have, you know, so, metat- metatarsals, metacarpal bones, tib fib bones, and, and a skull. skull and a jaw. And yep. there's that's no- it. And there's nothing else. Nothing else. Um, as Marion described, there were no larger bones ever recovered from the scene, and that so Marion and his other park ranger they they collect all this evidence and they actually give it to the FBI's evidence recovery team. So, um, so the FBI is involved here, and so we have to assume that we're getting a a, a next level of competency in the yeah, case. So FBI is involved now, at least in the aspect of. Uh, analyzing the remains. I don't know if, I don't think the FBI ever opened a criminal case on this, but they were assisting the state police in the, the evidence that was recovered. So on October 18th of 1976, FBI special agents and state police detectives delivered the skull and jawbone to the Klamath Falls pathologist. In their expert opinion, they said the bones belonged to Charles and they determined that the skull was undamaged. So So uh, it wasn't like a blunt force trauma. I'm guessing that's what they mean by that. It wasn't like an attack. Yeah. So he wasn't hit over the head or anything like that. That could be, I mean, and that would be animal or individual. So like that, when I think of that, like a bear coming and getting you in the head, then that's a lot of force. So, and the official cause of death by the authorities was ruled natural causes, which that, baffles me i don't know how you can find the scene that the rangers described with a broken leg bone and just a bizarre scene where the, all the remains are found in rule that natural causes but that's what the official cause of death was yeah and you think about the search like unless like let, let's let's so let's play the na- death by natural causes piece real quick so it's yeah. almost like he's hiking out there yep no equipment First of all, the huge mistake, he's going out, if he truly got to where he was, which I don't see how that'd be very reasonable without, like, snowshoes based on the depth, because we're talking, like, what do they say, like, 12 miles? Yeah. For him to get there in normal boots with 90 inches of snow with some drifts of 20 feet? Yeah. It would take you, it would take you a day and a half just to get to that location, and Quite honestly, I think you would die before you got there. Yeah, so as uh, Mary and Jack mentions, one of the things that really puzzled him about this disappearance was how was Charles able to walk from the north entrance on top of 105 inches of new snow for 14 miles into Bibby Creek, considering that he wasn't even prepared for winter survival. So that really, I mean, I don't know how you'd walk on 105 inches of new snow without snowshoes. Yeah. 
I, I just don't know how you do it. There's now there's some theories that he may have followed snowmobile tracks into that part of the park. Oh, like so like it was already like uh sunken down so it was easier to yeah, but, travel on. You know, Marion even says that that part of the park is off limits and he's never really seen people go back there with snowmobiles, so I you know, I don't know how plausible that explanation is. Mm-hmm. Um and there are reports too of some really strange storms in the area during the time of his disappearance. So you can imagine that not only has he, you know, he has to walk through 105 inches of snow for 14 miles, but he's probably facing, you know, heavy winds, a lot of snowfall coming down. It's probably dark out, very disorientating. I I just don't know how someone who's not a survivalist that's prepared for this could ever do that. Yeah. And I think, um, one of the things that piqued our interest too was the the comment that you kind of touched on was they were saying that there were some very odd storms that were so strange storms were reported during the time of the disappearance. Yep. And then it coincides with another photographer that had gone missing in the exact same area named BB Bukowski. Yeah. The link of these two, I'd say it's kind of thin. But yep. it really kind of got me going down more of a conspiracy route, which is always the fun route. I know. When we try getting the reports on this case, and then after hearing about that one, the other one, NPS lost the reports on those individuals. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is an amazing fact of the case. So, Freedom of Information Acts were filed with the NPS to get these case files. The NPS said that the park needed; they didn't have the space to keep them. So they just threw them out. They got rid of them. <laughs> and I want to be clear, too, that uh, I don't want anyone calling Crater Lake and demonizing them because we're not no. talking about the people now. No. We're talking about people back around when this happened. 1975. That determined that, you know, unsolved missing cur- persons cases, excuse me. I, I guess this one technically would be solved, but the B.B. Bukowski one just weren't really important files to keep around when they ran out of space for files. So yeah, you know, another, that, that's, interest, little, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Another interesting aspect of this case was while the authorities ruled it a death by natural cause, um, Charles, his father was adamant that something else happened to him. Um, we actually have a statement from his, that his father made at the time of the disappearance. So this is like parental instinct type stuff, which yeah, he, he knew something happened to his son that wasn't natural. And, and I, I honestly lean towards that being a very, oh, yeah. very viable thing. Yep. I have all the stories I've, I've read, things I've dealt with just when I was in EMS, you know, mother's intuition, father's yeah. intuition type stuff. It's no joke. There's, there's really something there when, when all of a sudden you get that feeling and you just know and you have no physical evidence or proof. You know, the guys across the entire country. Yeah. But he's, not accepting it and he just knows something's up this was an excerpt from a note that his father had wrote to <clears throat> congressman bird which i'm assuming was his probably that district probably that district or do so you think it was the dad's it might have been the dad's congressman i it didn't specify okay um but it's he said with no evidence being found in the extensive winter and summer searching and knowing him to be a responsible young adult we can find no other presumption to explain his disappearance other than he was involuntarily detained and killed. So he thinks it was foul play. 
he 100% thinks it's foul play. He wrote numerous letters to the local, the local police, state police, National Park Service, FBI. He wrote everybody that would listen to him that they needed to open an investigation into this case, that it wasn't a natural death. And he actually even said in letters that he was getting very frustrated with how the state police were handling the investigation. And, but he did say he commended the National Park Service for what they did in the search and rescue. He thought he thought they did everything they could to try and find him. What it sounds like is they've recovered everything, documented everything, and passed yeah. it off to the authorities. And they just kind of, the pathologist report was, oh, natural cause is not a big deal. Yeah. Except, you know what? You know what even, I, it's hitting me now that I'm hearing kind of his father's take on this was, where are the rest of the bones? If this is right. natural causes... I mean, it should be right in that area, and they search well enough that they're finding little fragments and stuff kind of hidden behind things. Like, where's the rest of his gear? Where's the rest of his bones? Marion Jack did mention one of the things that puzzled him, besides all of the other things, was <laughs> that usually in a case of maybe an animal attack, or you know, even if he he died on that scene, and then the an, you know animals came in after. He said it's it's really unusual for an animal to drag away most of the remains to another location. It, you, you know, usually they're going to consume the you know the the person there, and you're going to find lots of evidence of that. Well, you'd even have like bits of bone, and like, and then again, all over the the pants. If an animal had come in there, I yeah, mean, all that they'd, they'd be, be disturbed. Perfect. Yeah. So when you think about in the snow too. So let's pretend he got killed by natural causes and was covered in a snowdrift, and that's why they didn't find him. And then yep. he, you think like there wouldn't be just bones left because it's cold most of the year and covered in snow. He'd be well preserved. I mean, it's yeah. like you think about those bodies on Everest that are over a hundred years old, and you can still see facial features and things. So you you come to the scene where it's down to a skull and a few bone fragments and. Yep. So I, I can't imagine it was frozen the whole time. No, and then that brings up Marion's point is if, the, the you know, his body had, you know, he, he died there and then his body got covered in snow and frozen and then even when it, you know, it would thaw out, thaw out in the spring and if, you know, scavengers came in and started eating the remains, you would see evidence of that. You would yeah. see other bones, a hip bone. A, a black bear is not going to eat a hip bone. Well, and, um, the, and I think the blood on the on the outside of the bone is an indication that some type of trauma happened. Trauma happened while his heart was still beating because you see the blood's pumping still. Yeah. So if like that occurred, like the breakage of the bone occurred post-mortem, I don't think they'd notice the blood on it. Yep. So uh, I guess this is a good point, wow. to, good time to move into official theories and then kind of our theory. So Yeah, we have law enforcement says death by natural causes, which more and more I think is just BS. I don't, I don't, I don't think yeah. natural causes here. I think that situation attributed to it, but there's something else going on. Yeah, some of the media theories we already touched on. One of them was the the snowmobile path. I like I said earlier, I don't think that's a plausible explanation either. Yeah, and snowmobiles don't pat the snow down enough to be you know you're not walking like it's a sidewalk. It's still deep snow. No, and Marion Marion knows here, and you know if he says that that part of the park is off limits to snowmobiles, and he's never really seen him back in there. I, I really don't think that's going to be a plausible explanation, especially if it's 105 inches of new snow. Yeah. 
I mean, it's not like it's going to snow that much, and then the snowmobiles are going to be out the next second, you know, tooling through the park. Yeah, if there's that much snow, they're not hankering to get out. They can be out there all the time. You think about, yeah. like, Wisconsin, everyone just chopping at the bit for a good snowfall, and then it's just overcrowded. So um, one of the urban legend theories that the, some of the locals have – now, this one's interesting. I'll, I'll read it through. Um, so – there is a potential explanation that a weirdo backwoodsman <laughs> attacked Charles in the Crater Lake National Park area and stole his camera and cash, then in the dead of winter dragged his body into this remote part of Crater Lake, took his shirt and boots off, and set him up on a log and left him, reasoning that the animals would destroy the evidence by spring. The question remains, you know, 12 miles through two, 2.6 meters of fresh snow? Someone's going to drag somebody that far? Yeah, like, I, b- I believe the first part of that, which seems to be a report coming from, you know, a lady in a muumuu. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some weirdo blackwoodsman, <clears throat> or backwoodsman. Um, so, I actually kind of like this theory, though, the first part. The second part, I don't think they drag the body there. No. Because then where's the rest of the body? Yep, exactly. But I, I could see... With him missing his things, you get some, like they said, backwoods, off the beaten path, hermit. Yep. That gets into a confrontation with Charles or sees him and sees the opportunity. And I think, I think if you want to go the conspiracy route a little bit, I think this ties into. So, let's back the train up here. So, like we mentioned earlier, the National Park Service lost. I'm doing air quotes. His case file. So what if at this time in Crater Lake National Park, there is some crazy guy that's living out in the woods, almost like a serial to- killer type that's killing hikers, the National Park Service, maybe they, they don't know who's doing it, but they kind of are getting a, you know, they kind of know something like this is happening and they don't want the publicity. They're aware of the killer. Yeah. It's still in the earlier times where... There's no social media. Yeah, there's no social media, so they can kind of keep it under wraps to yeah. if they're worried about people not coming to the park if they think there's a serial killer there. Yeah, and I mean, now that's a crazy theory. It, it's who knows, and we don't know when the case files went missing. They could have, they could have disposed of the case files last year or you know back in 1976. We don't know the details of when those case files went missing, but it's just odd that the local law enforcement deemed the death by natural causes and then the park service coincidentally loses the case file and and then when you factor in all of the strange circumstances of the scene where his remains were found you know i could see easily see something weird going on in the park some you know somebody out there killing people and the park service doesn't want that kind of attention they don't want to you know lose the attendance they don't want the headache of knowing there's a killer out in the woods so it's easier just to you know make it go away yeah and this like <clears throat> now i want to do a whole show on this bb bukowski yeah right my head i was i was i was i know i'm looking at it just kind of real briefly to see if there's any weird things around there and um yeah there's a couple there's a couple reports of like in 1970, a human skull was found near Crater Lake National Park. Well, you know, and Crater Lake does have a history of strange disappearances. I know the missing 411 books cover a lot of different disappearances in 
Crater Lake, and they a lot of them have the same things going on, like strange storms and um, you know things like that. So mm-hmm. it you know if you you tend to lean more on the the paranormal or the conspiracy theory stuff, there is ample fodder for you at Crater Lake. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, wow. I think, yeah. I think that's one of the main explanations for me, at least. I think, at least, I don't think death by animal is going to happen at that time in the winter. I mean, bears hibernate. They're not going to be out in the park in January. A lynx isn't going to kill you. There's no, there's no other predators in the park. You're getting into like a serial killer, but that's like a sick sick type of individual it maybe like tortured him or something like broke his leg and like had him stand out in the snow or so i don't know it'd be great to get the uh, report from the pathologist to see if they analyzed that broken leg bone to see if they could tell if it was did he break it from you know falling off something or did somebody you know hit him in the leg and break his leg that i mean would make a huge difference and what possibly happened to him. Yeah. So, and I don't think there, I don't think anything we read mentioned besides that his skull was undamaged, anything about the broken leg bone. I I think that's a vital piece of information that we're missing. Yeah. And, and, and I just keep coming back to, I mean, you can't tell if it's like broken pieces of bone later, but the fact that he noted that there is blood on it. Yeah. Leads me to believe that it was an injury that occurred before he died so it wasn't like a post-mortem thing where he's being defiled they should be able to tell how the leg was broken by looking at the bone they should yeah you should be able to know if he broke it himself or if someone you know hit him in the leg with a bat or like you said maybe tortured him so i think that it's interesting that that report never came out i think that would shed a lot of light on what happened to him now i'm also I didn't think of this originally when I read through it, but the logger. Now, do you think the logger that said he drove him to the park entrance has anything to do with this? My gut reaction is no, because, and again, I keep, I have to separate logical things because like he talked to the authorities. Yes. And if you had something to do with it, you'd want to stay away from the authorities. So if you have a case where they have no idea and they just are assuming this person went off and died of natural causes, like, don't get yourself involved unless it's a psychopath. And it's kind of like those people that set fires to houses, like, they hang around the scene. They'll ask the firefighters questions about it because they want to get, like, almost affirmation of the thing they've done. Yeah. So is he saying things and involving himself in the case as a way to like I'm the one who did it let's see if they can catch me type of deal yeah I don't I mean a lot of times you read about serial killers they will talk to the authorities I guess I don't know if they're confident in in what they're doing or if they're so I don't know what the the term I'm looking for but I I don't know if it would be out of the realm of possibility that if this logger is a serial killer and he's killing I don't people so. in the park. Yeah, you know, what's he th- what's he doing out there? I mean, well, they're he's not a logger. They're, well, I'm saying, but are they logging in a big blizzard? You know, they're saying there's a bunch of strange weather going on. Yeah, you think they'd be waiting that out? Why is he out driving around? Well, um, I mean, that would be evident. That would be more. So, if there's a nasty storm and all the snow, 
what is this logger doing in the park? Yeah, did he see, you know, was Charles going to... So, obviously, he's living out of his VW bus. Yeah. Did he approach Charles and kind of figure out what he's doing then offer him a ride and then ditch him initially or bring him out there to yeah steal his stuff that doesn't him, make do sense whatever. The, the logger giving him a ride to the park entrance so i guess we have to assume that it means the logger drove him from somewhere outside the park to the entrance i'm guessing it's not from somewhere inside the park entrance inside the park to the park entrance I'm, yeah, I'm guessing his bus probably wouldn't be able to make it through all that. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that would play a factor too. If it would be different if the, the logger had picked him up in the park and mm-hmm. drove him to the park entrance. But you know, it, my mind thinks, okay, this guy, this guy is going out into the park. There's probably no one else out there, but there's this logger that drove him to the park entrance. So this guy does know he's out there. You know, I'm just trying to think of you know plausible reasons why this guy died. Besides, you know, exposure and mm-hmm. it, yeah, he talked to the police and said that he'd gave him a ride to the entrance, but you know, this logger was the only guy that was in the area that knew where Charles was going. I don't know. It just seems a little strange to me, but you're probably right. Yeah. It's <laughs> crazy. It's such it, it's, I mean, that's why I love all these cases because it true, like I said in the beginning, it just leaves way more questions than it has answers, and yeah. you you get literally all the data available, and it leaves it more confusing than if you wouldn't have found him at all. And that's why I think it's important because sometimes people ask, "Oh, you call it locations unknown, but we found the remains." But yep. the the case is not solved. You know, they ruled it yep. natural causes, but nothing about it says natural at all. No, and. This is our the first first episode we've done where we can, I think, legitimately say one of the maybe more far-out possibilities is kind of a conspiracy in nature with maybe the Park Service or the, the local state police uh, at that time. Not today, obviously. Yeah, with, with the other people. Because there's, I mean, we named one other photographer who went missing, but there's like three or four strange disappearances, and this is not that huge of a park especially no. when you take the lake into perspective there's only there's very few hiking trails so there's a lot of people going missing in a very small relative area if you will yeah so it's um uh, i think it, it it's a really interesting case as, as you, you read more and more into it it just leaves you with more and more questions i after doing this i don't i in a lot of our other episodes even though the person's never been found. I think we've come up with some pretty decent theories on what could have happened to him. This is just, I know we say after after every episode, this is just <laughs> puzzling, but this one truly is. Yeah, it's a good one. And it, it, it does, to me, feel like a conspiracy is going on, at least not in the paranormal in nature, but in the sense that there is a, a weird, strange dude out in the park killing people. I think I'm with you. I think it's it's a conspiracy in the sense that there was potentially some form of cover up. Yep. Possibly, maybe not directly known. You know, the the Hollywood side says one of the park rangers' brother is the guy. Right. And they're, and they're help. He's got. He's sick, and he feels like he's helping him out by picking these victims out. But really, it could be. It's hard enough to get people to come to your park that's got snow ninety percent of the year. Yep. And if you start hearing about 
grizzly murders? Are they going to shut your park down? Are you going to be out of a job? So you're just covering it up and saying, oh, it's a dangerous place to hike. Yeah. But truly you think, you know, as a ranger, there might be somebody out there that's picking off visitors uh, that are by themselves and vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they they do it in the wintertime when it's... Oh, when th- no one's going to be there. Who's going to witness that? Yeah, no one's going to be there and everyone's going to assume exposure. They died because of hypothermia, frostbite. Yeah, because yeah, why not? <clears throat> yeah. So, I don't know. I think I think that's the theory I'm sticking with. Uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I uh fully and and holy. So, yeah, with that, I know if you want to if you want to close us out, Mike, I think we got our theories on. That's probably the first time we both just categorically agree and are ready to just leave it at that. Yeah, I <laughs> I can't think of a different theory that based on all of the evidence in totality, the the remains that were found, the statements from the park ranger, the fact that the park service lost the case files. And, and at least two similar cases. That That's exactly. what kids say. So like one, sure, mishandling documents, especially from the government, happens all the time. Yeah. But it just so happens that two very similar cases that had a lot of questions about them just weren't deemed important enough to keep around. Yeah. Seems a little odd. So Yeah, so... I would like well, to hear the theories from the listeners. So yeah, on social media, you guys, let us know what you think. Yeah, again, we just like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Locations Unknown podcast. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook. Leave some comments on the episode. We're getting some great feedback on people or from people after they've listened to our episodes. If yep, and we'd and, like to thank uh, Verger again for for sponsoring this episode. And they yep. they actually sponsored a few more, so you'll be hearing more about Verger CBD products. So please. Um, you'll see uh, we'll post something on the Facebook page for them let them know that you appreciate their products and hopefully they keep sponsoring us so we keep this thing running alright thanks guys and we'll talk to you later